few weeks ago, uh, we were at the Lone Jack Church building, and one of the members there was looking at the bulletin board, and he was looking at the Vandalia Flyer, which you know what they were trying to figure out, right? <laughs> so he said, Keith, uh, you've been assigned to get off my lawn. What is that? <clears throat> what is the subject for that? Well, you know, it's like all the Vandalia subjects. They're pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> What I was asked to address was taboo topics in a Christian's personal life, money, relationships with mates, relationships with children, politics, personal addictions. Are these taboo or should they be? Is there any appropriate way to address these kinds of personal things or should they even be anyone else's business? How can help be given without appearing condemning and shaming? I don't know about you, but our privacy expectations are pretty high. Mine are. If I'm doing research for a refrigerator on the Internet, it irritates me that Google and Facebook know that. And every other site I go after that, the the ads all say, look at this great deal on a refrigerator app. That irritates me. We're not here to talk about the Internet. This would be a much longer discussion if we were. But we are talking about Christians. How do Christians behave, and what is our expectations within the body of Christ? We have to talk about the uniqueness of the relationship within the body of Christ, because it is unique. I would say that you will not find another set of relationships like the body of Christ. You may find a lot of other people that like one another and maybe get along some, but I would argue that you will never find any group as close as the body of Christ. Colossians 2 and 2 says that we are to be knit together in love. Now that's pretty interesting. And many of you know a lot more about knitting than I do. It just looks like a very organized way of knotting together a bunch of string. And it kind of is. And so if you think about your personal lives, that's what we're being told to be. To be so knotted up together and so intertwined in love that we are unlike any other relationship on this earth. That is the body of Christ. In Romans, the 12th chapter and 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, there's a description here using the metaphor of the body, talking about the body of Christ. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. You notice the relationship there. If you're all intertwined together and in love, you are are tied together in that way. When one hurts, the other hurts. When something good happens to one, the rest of them know about it and they're excited for it. Right? That doesn't happen anywhere else to that extent. Because our bond is something that is beyond this life. That's what makes it so special. And when we're together in this body, if one member, one piece of that body stops functioning, 
Every other member knows it. If your ankle stops functioning, you don't have to tell your knee or your hip or all the other joints around it. They know. And that's the way it's supposed to be within the body of Christ. So when we think about this unique relationship in the body of Christ, which is the local body or maybe an extended body, we're an extended body here today. There's a lot of members from different smaller congregational bodies that are here. But we're still the body of Christ. We may not know each other quite as well because we're not around each other as much. But the relationship is the same. Knowing of how we are knit together and knowing the impact that we have upon one another when one part hurts, the rest of them hurt. When one feels good, the rest feel good. Is it possible to expect privacy in the body of Christ? Is it reasonable to think that our pain or our joy or our struggles or our accomplishments are not shared by the body that you're a part of? Can, it reasonably, can we reasonably expect that they can be hidden from one another? Around January, I had the toenail on my left big toe taken off. I, I'm guessing that most of you didn't know that. <clears throat> At least I didn't get a lot of good well cards or home-cooked meals from Iowa. But that's okay, because it really wasn't that big of a deal, right? You know, really, in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't. I just had to look for the grandkids and, on occasion, Lita. And I could, I could avoid any real significant impact from that thing happening. <clears throat> and I could expect to have that private because it didn't matter. And I could have shared it if I wanted to, and there were some that I shared it with. But I could have expected it to be private. And yet when I, as a part of the body of Christ, now when my faith begins to fail, and I begin to separate myself from the rest of the body, should I expect to keep that private? Is it possible to keep it private? Let's consider the purpose for becoming part of the body of Christ. And it begins with a recognition that sin has separated me from God and that the reconciliation can occur only when I recognize it and I believe that Jesus Christ can bring me back to Him and that I can be baptized into Christ. You notice that, that terminology? Galatians tells us that we're baptized into Christ, which means that we are now a part of that body. But we have a purpose in that, becoming part of the body. Because we're looking beyond this life and saying, I want the reconciliation with God. I don't want to be separated from Him anymore. And therefore, I do this, which makes me part of the body of Christ. So all the things, the trappings that come with that, that being knit together in love, the hurting when somebody else hurts, the being joyful when somebody else is joyful, all comes because I'm here in the body of Christ. And that reconciliation really comes to fruition when we meet a righteous judge. And he's separating the sheep and the goats, the sheep to the saved, the goats to those who haven't followed him. And we want to be in the sheep. And that's when the reconciliation occurs. That's when it's completed, but it begins because we're in the body. 
And to help show that, let's consider the parable of the dragnet in Matthew the 13th chapter. Starting in verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels and threw the bad away. And so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and separate the wicked from among the just and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. The kingdom of the kingdom is the body of Christ. It is that local congregation of believers. And notice that you have to be in that to be separated into the good and the bad. It doesn't say everyone else in the sea. All the other fish in the sea were being separated into the good and bad. It says those that were brought up by the dragnet, and the dragnet is the kingdom of heaven, which is the kingdom of God, which is the church. We have to be there to meet Jesus with some reasonable expectation that our salvation will occur. And so it's good that we want that reconciliation and we're put into the body of Christ. And here we are, um, uh, working with one another, being knit together in love, with the expectation that we can achieve our salvation when Jesus comes again. So would it make sense for someone to say, I wanted my salvation... So I became a part of the body. But now I'd rather be cast into the furnace of fire. But this is a private decision. You aren't allowed to get involved. Or would it make sense for anyone, any part of the body to say, it sure looks like that part of the body is leaving. And it's leaving the body that is necessary to their salvation. But since they want privacy, I shouldn't say anything. Neither of those things, I think, make any sense. Because of the reason for the body. And the reason that you joined the body is beyond this life. So maybe the key is drawing this line, a line maybe, between spiritual and physical. Between spiritual things that have spiritual connotations and those things that don't. Because spiritual things affect your salvation, but non-spiritual things really don't. We may do things in this life, but that only matters really if it has a spiritual connotation. For example, something spiritual might be, do I have a self-sacrificing agape love? Am I putting all of your interests above my own? Are you putting all of our interests above your own? That's a spiritual thing. Am I committed to stirring up love and good works among the brethren? Am I committed to keeping the commandments of Jesus Christ because I love him? John 14:15. If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Those are spiritual things. They affect your salvation. But that is different from what we might call the physical, such as don't wear polka dots and plaid. I have been told many fashion rules by my wife. What colors to go together, etc. But those things really don't matter, right? Those are things that are independent. They're neutral. They don't have spiritual significance. It doesn't matter what brand of car 
uh, you drive. It doesn't matter what your favorite food is or what your favorite sports team is. And I have great answers to all those questions, but they don't matter. So the line that we draw about where maybe our privacy should begin and end maybe would be whether or not the things that we're talking about are spiritual. And if they're spiritual, then we should not expect privacy. We should expect to share that with one another because those things affect our salvation and we joined this body for a reason. And that is our salvation. I want to clarify that just because we may not expect privacy within the body on spiritual matters doesn't necessarily mean that it's all public either. But finding people that can be an assistance to you within the body in spiritual matters is crucial. Saying, I'm going to go this alone entirely, and no one has to know any of my faults, is not a reasonable expectation. It's not what God really expects of us. And remember, we might be successful in hiding things from others. Those that we know and love, we might be successful at keeping those things quiet, but God is always there. Jonah found that out, right? No matter where he went, there was God. Well, so it's never just us. It's us and God and hopefully brothers and sisters in the body that can assist us on this path. Some things we do in public. And when we do things in public, should we expect it to be private? Of course not. If I get arrested for shoplifting, that's a public thing. And I can't expect to hide that from you. And it might be good if I talk to you about that. Because as a representative of Christ here, as being a Christian, that's important for you to know. I have failed and I'm going to do better. And the expectation can't be any other than public things are public. Private things, we may be able to find the person that can help us privately. But there should be somebody who helps us privately. One of the questions asked was, how can we keep from condemning and shaming We'll talk more about this later, but when it comes to condemning and shaming, sometimes it is necessary and expected. 2 Thessalonians, the third chapter in the 14th verse says, If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. So there is a time when that is appropriate. It may be a rare circumstance that that occurs, And it probably shouldn't be our go-to thing, but it is appropriate in the right circumstance. That is expected. So our first interaction with somebody who we think may have an issue may not to be condemning and shaming, but there are circumstances when that absolutely is appropriate. Think of the man in 1 Corinthians that the man who's living with his father's wife is a very public thing. Everyone knew it. Everyone knew what the behavior was, and there was condemnation expected by Paul. He said you have to withdraw from that man, and ultimately is that he might be ashamed. So there is a place for that, but it probably shouldn't be the first tool out of the bag. Our subject here will not spend a lot of time on withdrawing, but I just want you to think about one other aspect of this. There are a lot of things that are reasons for withdrawing. We'll go through those really quickly, and then I want you to think about how that relates to privacy. Causing divisions, sexual immorality, being covetousness, 
idolater, a reviler or using malicious speech, a drunkard, an extortioner or a swindler, not working and taking advantage of the church, blaspheming, not accepting teaching, being proud, not accepting the truth, arguing about words, <clears throat> constant wrangling, thinking that godliness is for financial gain, being a deceiver or a false teacher, and trespassing against a brother. That's a long list of stuff. But think about all those things on there. How many of those are things that happen in private versus public? There's a lot of things here that could be private things. Sexual immorality, being covetous, being a drunkard. All those things can happen privately. But if the church is expected to take action against members who do this and refuse to change, how can it do that? How can it help if all this is private and we don't have any exposure to anyone else's life? you see the need for the body to be closer, to be knit together, to be aware of what's going on in each other's lives? doesn't mean you have to know everything, but it does mean you have to know a lot. If you're going to provide the, the, the responsibility that you have to provide support for others is going to require you to know something. And if you're going to allow others within the body of Christ to provide you support, you're going to have to let them know things. Sometimes that may be things that we're not especially proud of, and it may be hard to share, but it may be necessary to share. One of the other questions uh, that was asked was, are there subjects that we should avoid? Should they even be anyone else's business? So let's make a quick run-through of some of those topics that were suggested. <clears throat> Remember, what we're looking for here are, any, are there any spiritual connotations to these subjects? So really, specifically, we're going to be looking for what the Bible talks about with these subjects. And we're going to do this really quick because there's a lot of them. Money. We're taught that if a man doesn't work, neither shall he eat. 2 Thessalonians 3 and 10. We're taught, taught the dangers of being in debt, that a borrower is slave to the lender. Proverbs 22 and 7. About our relationships with our spouse, that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church from Ephesians 5. And yes, that means you may have to sacrifice it all for her. That wives are to be in submission to their husbands, Ephesians 5. And then in rare exceptions, divorce is not in the vocabulary of a Christian, Matthew 19 and 9. That relationships with our children... That fathers should train and encourage their children. Ephesians 6, Deuteronomy 6. They are to teach them. They are to encourage them. Have you noticed in Ephesians 6, it says, Fathers, bring up your children in the training and admonition of the Lord. Admonition is much closer to being a cheerleader than anything else. We think of admonition saying, there's a problem here. Rough justice. That's not what it means. It means to encourage them. To say, you know how to do this. You've done it before. You've had the teaching. You can do it. Look at all these other things you've accomplished. Go do that thing. Those are spiritual connotations about the relationship of fathers and their children. And that children learn obedience from their father so that someday they can learn how to obey the father. Not just their father. Politics. In my opinion, politics do not have a place in the pulpit. But the underlying issues, the spiritual issues behind all that should be taught. 
We must be willing to talk about all of those other things. What I mean by that is, it doesn't make sense, it's not appropriate in my view, that we use the pulpit to say, you should vote Libertarian, Democrat, Republican. That doesn't make sense. But we must be willing to talk about sexual purity, about the two genders and the one human race that God created. Those are spiritual issues, and they are true. June 11, 1995, I spoke here on a signed topic called Back of the Bus. Okay, now you guys get to decide what back of the bus, what the subject was. I think I heard it. Racism, that's right. Now, 26 years ago, there was many of you that weren't even alive here. But 26 years ago, I taught on that subject, and I learned a lot from preparing for that. And I've realized that in the last 26 years, God hasn't changed his mind on this subject. And guess what? The thousands of years before, he hadn't changed his mind either. That ultimately, culture and the skin tone of our, our skin tone have nothing to do with our salvation. That Jesus Christ shed his blood to redeem all of the human race. We have to know that and be able to teach and understand those things and not equivocate at all on those things. But that, in my view, does not turn into a sermon that tells us how to view the political world. If you're listening to a recording of this, go find the one by Tad Morris on June the 12th, 2021, and listen to his. Fantastic. He and I talked about this ahead of time. I, we we uh, tried to do something complimentary, and he did a fantastic job on a much broader um, discussion of that topic. Related to politics, we need to recognize the concept and the implementation of government was done by God in Romans, the 13th chapter. We need to recognize the need to demonstrate respect even to the unrespectable. Exodus 22 and 28 says, don't say anything bad about the ruler of your people. Acts, the 23rd chapter, Paul says something bad about the ruler of his people. And as soon as he realized it, he said, I shouldn't have done that. Because you don't do that. Spiritual connotations. We need to, to, we need to recognize the need to obey the laws of man. Not for our sake, but for the Lord's sake. In 1 Peter, the second chapter, starting in verse 12, is talking about how um, the Gentiles would be swayed by the fact that Christians do good works and they will see God through the good works. They will glorify God through those good works. And then he says, obey every ordinance of man for whose sake? Not yours, but for the Lord's. We have to recognize that. Even though we may dislike the things that, that are in our political arena, we have a responsibility to God to show honor to man. That's not to imply that man's laws are never overridden by God's because they're always overridden by God's, but most of the time they don't conflict such that we have to make that decision. We can and should obey the laws of man for Christ. And I, unfortunately, as I think a lot of these conversations occur, they become about us. I don't like this thing. I don't like this rule. I don't like this law. So therefore, I'll go do my own thing. And we have to put it in context of God. I don't like this law. I don't like this rule. But for the glory of God, 
and the impact that I can have on all those around that show that Christians obey and put themselves in submission to higher authority, I'm going to obey this rule. I'm going to obey this law. Probably the best statement I think I've heard in this arena is, no matter who the president is, my king is still the same. Who are you going to care the most about? Somebody who won't even be alive in a few years? Or the king who will be there forever? So all of those things that we just talked about are not independent physical things that have no impact upon our spiritual life. They all have spiritual connotations. So which of those things should we say, no, 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 you can, we can talk about a lot of things, but this thing over here, we can't talk about because this is private. And the reality is all of those things have spiritual teaching and therefore they are things that we should be willing to talk about to share with one another. Because think about this. We're the body of Christ, but we're all reading from the same manual. We shouldn't have a hundred different views of every topic. We should be able to come closer and closer and closer to the understanding that God has on this subject. So the fact that we share that with one another is an important thing to do. Hey, I believe this because it says this here. And then you can say, yeah, well, I, I, I agree with that too, or I don't because of this. And by the time we're done, we understand what the will of God is, not what our will is. And so we should be more and more free with our sharing with one another and, again, knitting ourselves to, together in love. So why won't we share these battles with one another? I don't want to share with you problems that I have. We all want to look good. We don't, any of us, want to admit our problems. But there's a word that applies to that, isn't there? Pride? Isn't that pride? You say, I don't want you to I don't want you to hear the bad things about me. That's why we cover things up. We don't want to share. You're too much in my space. James the fourth chapter in the sixth verse says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So if we really want to be right with God, we're going to have to do what he wants us to do, which is to humble ourselves, which means that when we get away, get away from pride, then that allows us to have to be willing to say, I have a flaw here, and I'm battling this thing. And some of these things are obvious to us, to each other, what some of those flaws are. But being willing to say it to someone else can be an important part of our addressing it. Because the body of Christ here is here for this purpose is to prepare us for what comes next. There's another reason why we might have difficulty sharing it is <clears throat> we may not want to change it. In 2 Peter, the second chapter, starting at verse 20, it says, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. I don't know what that latter end is worse means. There's, we could conjecture a lot of different reasons about why it might be worse, but what we know is that it is worse. So if we are a Christian and a part of the body of Christ and we find ourselves staggering off into the, into the weeds and back to where we came from, that's worse 
Now, isn't that something that the body of Christ should care about? Don't you want somebody to care about you going into a worse position than what you were before you even knew Jesus? That's something we should want, that type of support. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit. Probably a lot of us have observed that, and it's not a pleasant sight. We find ourselves in that position when we turn from the body of Christ, which, remember, is the way that we reach the judgment with an expectation that we can become sheep. If we have left that, we are, I'd say it, eating our own vomit. And unfortunately, sometimes we don't care. We enjoy where we are at that point in time. Now that kind of gives me a little bit of, you know, when I even think about that. But that is a depiction of where we are when we walk away from the body of Christ. But this is private. You can't be involved in that discussion as I eat my own vomit. It has to be. It has to be a part of the body of Christ, something we can and do share and accept help with. So how can we approach this conversation to achieve a godly outcome? Well, it takes two. The one in error must be willing to listen to the concern and at least entertain the possibility that they might be wrong. And the one approaching them must be willing to be gracious and loving if they expect anyone to hear it. It takes two for this to work. And that means there's going to be a lot of work put in on both sides to make sure that they're ready to listen and that they're ready to approach in the right way. But no matter which one of them does it right or wrong, we should still be ready to be successful in this interaction. So what will you do if you approach somebody in the right way, but they get angry? First, consider why they would take on this difficult task. Is it because they are concerned about your salvation? Probably so. Look for the truth in what they said and and ignore the way it got dressed up that morning. Look for the truth. Because not many people are probably great at doing this, but we have to be willing to look for why it's being said. Even if somebody approaches you in the most horrible way possible, if they're helping you to turn your life back from this bad thing that you've turned yourself into, then shouldn't you be thankful for that? No matter how poorly they do it, and we can do it poorly, believe me, shouldn't you be happy about that? So what if you do if somebody approaches you in a haughty, angry way? Proverbs 9 and 8 says, Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. (laughs) Do you love being rebuked? I don't. But that may say something about me. 
If there's one thing I want you to remember as you walk away from today, it's Proverbs 9 and 8. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Let's say it together. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. If you forget every single thing I said, remember that. Because it's unnatural to us and yet it is true. Rebuking is not a fun thing. This is wrong and it needs to be addressed. But why would a wise man love that? Because he's willing to accept the fact that he may be wrong. And the fact that you were wrong is important. That's a past tense word. I was wrong. But now, I'm not. And isn't that what we want? Don't we want to be in God's good graces? And that happens when we know truth. And that happens because we're willing to listen to truth. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. And just because someone approaches you with a concern does not mean that you're wrong. But be willing to listen to it, honestly evaluate it, and see, is there truth to this? I have been approached many times in my life. Sometimes they've been right. Sometimes they've been wrong. Enlist others to help you. Go to them and say, you know, I've, uh, I think this might be a problem, or is this what I said? Is this, is this the way it comes across? Is this the thing I'm doing? What does the Bible say on this subject? Look for all those things because your salvation hangs in the balance, right? And you've got a body of Christ, part of the body, coming to you and saying, I think there's a problem. Don't you deserve, don't they deserve you listening to it with your salvation hanging in the balance? Let's consider the account of Apollos in Acts, the 18th chapter. I love this story. Absolutely love it. Apollos is enthusiastically teaching and preaching, but he has some important things wrong. Priscilla and Aquila take him to the side and they teach him. And he learns better. And then what does he do? He goes back out and he begins to teach again. Only now he has the truth. So what lessons do we learn? Well, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, they took him to the side privately and then they educated him. Is that our approach? Do we give people the benefit of the doubt and say, well, you know, they did something like this, but maybe it's just because they didn't know any better. And maybe I should just approach them and talk to them about what the Word of God says on that subject. You know, I might be wrong too. I may not have, I may not even know the circumstance correct. So don't go in with guns blazing. Go in and say, hey, uh, you know, I noticed this subject. There's a subject here that we ought to just talk about and You may find out you were completely off base with your understanding of the issue. But if nothing else, you have now talked about the Word of God and you have shared what the Word of God says on that subject. And now through that education, that may correct the whole thing right there because they didn't know any better. And if we make that assumption, I just really think that's the first step that ought to be taken. Educate without any bias about guilt. Titus, the second chapter, starting in the third verse, says the older women likewise, that they should be teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. 
Now this is a good example because it specifically shows Christians teaching other Christians on subjects. Now there's a lot of others that we could use, but that one was very specific to that. And notice that they're teaching them specific things, and the more time we spend together studying the Word of God, the more lines of communication get opened up, and all of a sudden things change in our relationship. Now it's not a huge deal when somebody wants to talk to somebody else. It's a, we just did this last week or last month or whatever, so let's talk about something else that's of importance to us as Christians. And that education then leads us to James 5 and 16. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And this is the optimum, right? Education to understand that there's a problem and then a reaching out to somebody else within the body in order to say, help. I need help with this thing. Which then leads us to one member of the body supporting another member. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's a law of Christ that you get in and work with one another. And we have to be willing to do that. We have to be willing to open the door to let somebody into our life, and we have to be willing to get out of our own comfort zone and be in someone else's. So that we can help them. Because restoration is the objective. Right? Because we're in the body of Christ. Because we want to get to the end. Because we love Christ. And we know that reconciliation comes through Him. That's why we're here. And why it's important that we stay within the body. So let's recap a few things uh, that we've talked about today. Breaking down walls is beneficial for both. Both sides of the equation within the body of Christ. Be willing to accept that you might be wrong and listen to the concern. Consider the love it takes for somebody to come to you and risk your displeasure over something. Nobody wants that. But if they're risking that, then you should honor that and say, what is it that you have to say to me that I need to know? Let your gentleness be known to all. Philippians 4 and 5. Be willing to risk everything to restore somebody in spiritual matters. Be willing to endure anything to avoid the contention that can come from physical matters. Visualize yourself driving down an eight-lane highway with a 100-mile-per-hour speed limit. Zoom. You stop and get gas, and the guy at the gas station says, you plan to keep going that way? Because about a mile, it just runs off a cliff. Now, would you be happy to hear that? Or would you be saying, what are you doing up in my business? We ought to be happy to hear that. And we should view that within the body of Christ when somebody approaches us on anything. We should approach it in that way. You must love me a lot to talk to me about this thing. Because my salvation hangs in the balance. So thank you. And then you sort out what the right and the wrong is and all the details and all that, but you start there so that the next conversation can occur. And one last thing I almost forgot. What's the one thing I wanted you to know? Proverbs 9 and 8. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. <laughs>